listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture reading today is Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For all the boots of the tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, a son has been given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thanks for that reading, Kathy. So this is it, everybody. We're at the end of the Advent season, almost. Um, Christmas is in five days. Are we ready? You got all your like shopping done and stuff like that. Are we are we close? Are we are we pumped? Are we like excited? I'm excited. I think putting on this sweater today made me really excited. Um, it's Jesus celebrating his birthday. Um, I'm not. I can't really say that I'm ready exactly. I was supposed to wrap Christmas presents last night, which I did not do because I was uh, working on this sermon. But I've got five days. I've got five days. We're still good. We're not out of time yet. I can I can still do it. Um, before we get started, I do want to give another plug uh, for our virtual Christmas Eve service for anyone who came in a little late or maybe joined the live stream late. Um, it's going to be an absolutely beautiful service, uh, 100% pre-recorded. You can watch it um, at home, safe. You can share it with friends and family online. This service is releasing Wednesday, so the day before Christmas Eve. I'm going to try to get out in the a.m. Um, and you'll have a whole day and then, and then afterwards to share it, to you know, post it. It'll go out on the email. It'll be on Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff. Uh, you should be able to find it there. And I want to say, too, I know it's a little different to be celebrating Christmas Eve remotely. Um, it's a little strange. It's a little weird. We would rather be here, of course. But, you know, make the best of it. Make some cocoa. Uh, put on your PJs and, you know, watch the Christmas Eve service. I, that sounds like a good Thursday night to me. I don't know about you. <clears throat> We are finishing up our Advent teaching series today, which is called What's in a Names, uh, where we've been looking at the names for the Messiah found in Isaiah chapter 9. We've already covered Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and Everlasting Father, which means we've got one left, Prince of Peace. Now, good news, there's nothing, like, tricky going on in the Hebrew this week. We're not going to do, like, a grammar lesson like we've done in some previous weeks. It's pretty straightforward. Prince of Peace means Prince of Peace, the the prince who brings peace. And yet, there is something really interesting about this title, Prince of Peace. 
Uh, we've been reading this book, Names for the Messiah, in our Advent small groups. I know a number of you are, are in those. And I actually chuckled a little bit when I read um, the chapter for this week covering Prince of Peace, which um, if, you, if you're in one of the small groups and you're reading this book, you know there's not a, not a lot of yucks in this book exactly. Um, the author, Walter Brueggemann, is like one of the He's brilliant. He's one of the best Old Testament scholars in the world, but a uh, comedian he is not. Um, but, but I laughed when I got to this line uh, on page 61. It'll be up here on the screen. <clears throat> we must ponder the strange juxtaposition of the terms prince and peace, for the notion of peace defies all normal notions of any prince. It's not, like, it's not like stand-up or anything, but I think for an 87-year-old Bible scholar, this is about the closest you're going to get to snark, right? This is, this is pretty good. I chuckled at that. But he's, he's right. There's something really ironic, almost contradictory, about the phrase, Prince of Peace. Because if you think about it, if you look over history, if you look at most, most princes, most rulers, most leaders, even our presidents today, not many of them are known for peace. I know for, like, my lifetime, if a president can, like, get through a term without invading another country, that's a win, right? <laughs> Which is, like, an, an awfully low bar. Not many of them uh, pass it. And this strange juxtaposition, this prince of peace idea, the strangeness of this idea is nothing new, really. Uh, power corrupts, right? That's the phrase. Uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. The more power you amass, the more authority you get, the more you're going to be tempted toward corruption and violence. That's always been the case. It's nothing new. If you look at most world leaders throughout history, very few of them had peaceful reigns. The ancient Israelites knew this. Uh, this is part of the reason they were never supposed to have a king. Did you know that? The Israelites in the Old Testament were never supposed to have a king. That was never part of the plan um, because God was supposed to be their king. Israel was supposed to be a different sort of kingdom, this like shining city on the hill for all the world to see, reflecting God's light with God as its ruler. But that didn't last very long. Um, Early on in Israel's history, for the first like 300 years or so, there was no king, there was no central government, just a bunch of kind of loosely connected tribes and clans. But then the people cried out to God for a king because they wanted to be like all the other nations. They wanted a figurehead, a strong man, someone who who could rule over them, wage war for them, and protect them because they didn't trust God's protection. And God warned the Israelites that this prince thing, this monarchy, was not going to work out. Um, we actually see this in First, Chance, First Samuel chapter 8. We'll have it up here on the screen. This is God's warning to the Israelites when they cry out for a king. This is great, <clears throat> depending on how you define great. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. Not a big fan of war. The king will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards to give it to his officers 
He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you. Ouch, right? All those with ears, let them hear. God's basically saying, if I give you a king, you're going to be slaves to that king. If you want a ruler with unchecked power and authority, he's going to use that power against you. He's going to rule over you. He's going to take your kids for his armies. He's going to take your land, your crops. You will be his slaves. Those who have ears, let them hear. People of Israel hear all that, and they're like, that's fine. We want a king. We still want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. And so God gives them a king. Now, if you've read much of the Old Testament, or like if you've ever heard of the Old Testament, the bulk of it is stories about the kings, right? And it's terrible. It's awful. The kings are not good people. Most of them are evil. They're wicked. Um, And even some of the good kings, like kings like David and Solomon, were not great guys. Um, David raped a woman, got her pregnant, and then had her husband killed to cover it up. That's pretty bad. Solomon, David's son, built a temple in Jerusalem, a temple to the God who freed the slaves of Egypt using slave labor. These are not heroes. We shouldn't want to emulate the kings of the Bible. If anything, they are the villains. They're the bad guys. And King Hezekiah, who um, Isaiah 9 was written about originally, he wasn't much different. Uh, We talked a lot about the context of this passage in recent weeks. We've talked about this poem in Isaiah 9 with all these royal titles, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. This poem was originally written about King Hezekiah. He ruled over Jerusalem in the 8th century B.C., and he was a good king as kings go. He was an improvement on the norm. But he was still a hot mess. The big threat to God's people in the time of Hezekiah was the Assyrians, right? The Assyrian Empire. We've talked about this too. You've seen um, this next picture of the Assyrians a few times. Um, And they were the big bad guys on the scene. They were the threat. And the hope when Hezekiah is called Prince of Peace was that he would take care of the Assyrians once and for all. He would drive out this evil empire and establish peace in the land. You can actually read Hezekiah's story if you want to. It's in the Bible. Um, It's in Isaiah 36 to 39 and 2 Kings 18 to 21. You can read either of those. They're verbatim the same, which means someone ripped somebody off. I'm not sure if if Isaiah plagiarized kings or vice versa. But it's, it's all right. Plagiarism wasn't a thing back then. Point is, you only have to read one to get the story. Um, Hezekiah was good as kings go, but a prince of peace he was not. He tried to deal with the Assyrians early on by buying them off, basically. He paid tribute to the Assyrian Empire, um, you know, offering to submit his kingdom to Assyria's authority if they would just leave him alone. That didn't work. Um, God had to swoop in miraculously and save Jerusalem from invasion. 
And then to secure his position against the Assyrians a few years later, Hezekiah buddied up with the Babylonian Empire, and we've talked about that in recent weeks. We know how that worked out. Hezekiah dies. Babylon crushes Assyria, becomes the new big bad empire on the scene, and then they invade and destroy Jerusalem. So you get a brief period of peace toward the end of Hezekiah's rule, but it wasn't a true peace. It didn't last. Hezekiah, like, kept his head above water. He managed the storm a bit better than the norm, and that's a far cry from peace. So the people were left waiting. They were left wondering, hoping for almost 800 years, crying out for a king, a messiah, someone who would live up to that title, Prince of Peace. Now, when Jesus steps on the scene, a little more history, Rome was the big bad guy on the scene, the Roman Empire. They were the authority. And their rule was cemented by the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Show of hands, how many people have heard of this in like high school history class, the Pax Romana? That's a lot of us. That's pretty good. The Pax Romana was basically peace through domination and violence. Peace through fear of repercussions if you did anything to upset the peace, basically. That's the Pax Romana. The Romans were the biggest, most dominant military power the world had ever seen. They were also one of the most advanced societies on the earth. They built roads and bridges. They had schools and universities, art, culture, flushing toilets, right? All of this could be yours under the Pax Romana for the price of total submission to Roman rule. If you accepted peace on their terms, you could have it all. But if you resisted, you tried to govern yourself, you tried to think for yourself, if you tried to have your own culture, if you uh, took a stand against Roman violence, then they would destroy you. That's the Pax Romana. Peace on the terms of empire is not true peace. As a contrast to all this, a little more positive, let's talk about the biblical understanding of peace for a minute. Um, In Hebrew, the word for peace is shalom. Let me hear you all say shalom. And shalom to you. Very good. Excellent. Shalom. Shalom is a good word to know. Like as biblical concepts go and Hebrew words go, this is a big one. This is one to put in the memory banks. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace, but it is a much bigger concept than all these fallen, broken, unjust, worldly visions of peace that we're used to. Shalom is not the absence of conflict. It's the presence of justice, balance, equity, the right social ordering. That's shalom. If you've heard the Martin Luther King Jr. quote, this is kind of a famous one, true peace is not merely the absence of tension, it's the presence of justice. He's talking about shalom. That's basically a dictionary definition of the biblical concept of shalom. It's about right relationships, social equity, economic justice, the proper balancing of society, making sure you don't have this huge gulf between rich and poor, but that everyone has enough. 
These aren't like radical leftist ideas, by the way. This isn't like Marxism or politics. This is scripture. This stuff is all over the Bible. Marxism is basically just atheists trying to do shalom without God. That's, that's kind of what that is. I would argue that's why it doesn't work. You can't read the Bible and not find this, at least not well. It is everywhere. Uh, read Acts chapter 2 about the economic practices of the early church. It's shalom. Um, look at the Garden of Eden and God's ideal from the opening chapters of Genesis, shalom. Read the Jewish law, um, command after command about how you structure society, how you run an economy. Read the prophets, read the gospels, Isaiah, Jesus, shalom is everywhere. This is the peace Jesus brings. When we say Prince of Peace, we're talking about Shalom. And one of the core biblical ideas with Shalom is you cannot build it on violence and injustice. It doesn't work. You can't build a just system on a bedrock of injustice. You can't maintain peace through violence. The means to an end have to align with the end itself. Otherwise, the whole system crumbles. This, by the way, is why God did not want the Israelites to have a king. This is why God didn't want them to be like all the other nations. If violence could bring about peace, we would have figured it out by now. Got another quote from uh, MLK that goes along with this, sort of like an extended riff on Shalom. In the final analysis, means and ends must cohere because the end is preexistent in the means. I want to say that again. Means and ends must cohere because the end is preexistent in the means. And ultimately, destructive means cannot bring about constructive ends. All those worldly approaches to peace we've covered, peace through violence and domination, the way of Rome, or um, peace through the right alliances, right, buddying up with, the, with some other big guy to fight your battles, hoping that he'll win the war for you, trying to buy your way out of conflict the way Hezekiah did, all of those worldly approaches to peace fail because they are based on injustice. That's not shalom. If you want to see shalom in action, look at Jesus. Because his entire life and ministry was marked by a reestablishment of shalom. Jesus meets outsiders, folks who've been cast out from the community. He restores them to community balance. He encounters sick people, people whose bodies are out of balance. He heals them. He casts out demons. He forgives sins. He exposes the hypocrisy of those in power, bringing down the powerful and exalting the lowly. That's a Christmas text, right? Luke chapter 1, I think, or 2. Balance. Shalom. Jesus meets rich people, and they give away all their money. That would be a nifty trick. I'd like to try that one, like, uh, I don't know, the stock market or something. At every turn, though, Jesus is rebalancing the system, establishing justice, restoring community, restoring shalom. And the ultimate example of that is when he establishes peace between God 
and humanity through his death on the cross. Jesus doesn't win by crushing his enemies. He doesn't win by being the biggest, the strongest, the toughest. He doesn't raise up an army and try to mount a violent revolution. Jesus wins by letting his enemies crush him. It is a wildly contradictory picture of victory and peace, but I think that's why it's so compelling. That might be why we're still talking about it 2,000 years later. And then through his death, Jesus overcomes that biggest injustice of all, that imbalance between life and death through resurrection. Here's why this is so important. Here's why I want to drive this home. We are aching for peace right now as a society. We are yearning for it. I know I am, and I don't think I'm alone. Between, like, the pandemic and economic collapse and unrest and violence, multiple um, black churches in Washington, D.C. were vandalized in the last week and a half, along with synagogues. We've done a really nice job kind of maintaining the facade, right? Um, Maintaining a sort of tentative peace through violence and domination. We've had a nice stretch, but the foundation's cracking. And what we see through those cracks, some of it's very, very ugly. Some people are seeing that and they're trying to maintain maintain peace the old way, through violence, going back to what we know. Um, This would be like the Proud Boys, QAnon, these violent groups. People are seeing cracks in the system and so they're turning to violence. Let's tear the whole thing down. On On the other end, you've got people who are turning to despair, hopelessness, disengaging. It's not worth fixing. But there is a third way. Between violence and despair, between death threats and giving up, there is the way of shalom, the way of peace, the way of Christ. As followers of Jesus, I really think we have a responsibility here. Like this, moments like these, this is where the rubber meets the road. And our faith is tested. Massive numbers of people in our society are starting to see for the very first time that the systems we have constructed to run our lives don't work very well. And if nothing else, that's an opportunity for us to show them a better way. To speak out against violence and injustice. To stand with the marginalized who are crying out for deliverance. To do the hard work of listening, learning from our mistakes, repenting and doing better. Working towards shalom. I'm not in that hopeless camp. In fact, despite all this darkness, despite all the the stuff that we're seeing, all the cracks in the foundations, I'm more hopeful than I've been in years because I see an opportunity 
to practice the self-sacrificial love of Jesus and for it to really make a difference. To love our neighbors, regardless of whose political sign is in their yard. To make sacrifice, to put the needs of others ahead of ourselves. To practice the gospel and point others to Christ. There is peace. Shalom is coming. The unrest will settle. The vaccines will arrive. This present crisis will end, but what comes after is up to us. May we turn away from violence and despair and follow the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. God, thank you for bringing the peace, the shalom of your Son into our midst. Thank you for the season of Advent, a season when year after year we practice waiting and hoping so that we will not be left hopeless in moments like these. God, empower us to embody the shalom of your Son and to point others to his peace this Advent. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.